Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, listeners, we're delighted that you're with us for another episode of Free and Fair with Franita and Foley. Um, like last time, we're uh, recording under uh, the quarantine conditions that the virus is imposing on all of us. Uh, and so our technology is not the most ideal. We're still troubleshooting that. And, and with each new episode, we should have improvements. I think uh, this week is, is better than the previous episode, but you may hear some glitches, uh, but they don't uh, take away from the substance of a great conversation with our guests. Uh, and with that, uh, here's the episode. Hey, Fernita, how are you? Hey, how are you doing today? Looking forward oh, to our conversation. Me too, me too. You uh, healthy and uh, safe in your family? Yes, we are uh, happily quarantined. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because we've got um, some exciting guests to share our episode with us. So why don't you get us rolling? Yes, we have two superstars. So uh, we have uh, Professor Nate Persley, who is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. Um, he also has appointments in the Departments of Political Science, Communication, and International Studies. Um, he's published very widely and his scholarship and legal practice focus on issues such as political parties, campaign finance, redistricting, and so on. Um, we also have Professor Charles Stewart, who is a professor of political science at MIT. Uh, he is the author of numerous books and articles, and his research and teaching areas include congressional politics, elections, and American political development. Um, we're really lucky to have both of them to join us today to talk about voting in the time of the virus. This is our, our, uh, our follow-up to our last podcast where we talked about some of the challenges of voting in the time of the coronavirus. Um, so I, I'm happy to get us started because I, I do think, um, since we have such distinguished guests, perhaps we can start with thinking about what should happen right now to best prepare us for November. Um, this week, uh, both Nate and Charles wrote um, law, a lawfare post uh, that offered 10 recommendations to ensure a healthy and trustworthy election, um, including a shift to mail balloting while also retaining some level of in-person voting. Um, also this week, Nate, along with uh, Bob Bauer and Ben Ginsburg, who um, served with him on a bipartisan presidential commission that was assembled to make recommendations about how to improve our elections in the wake of the 2012 elections, um, they wrote an op-ed in the New York Times suggesting that there are meaningful steps that we can take to ensure that um, in their words, quote, our elections are not among the victims of the coronavirus. Um, central to this, of course, is funding from the federal government um, so that states can use the money in a bipartisan manner to safeguard our elections. So in light of these wonderful uh, writings that both Nate and Charles have engaged in this week, I want to open up our discussion by talking in detail about these recommendations, about how states should prepare for November, and also how states will pay for it. Because right, notably, the coronavirus uh, relief bill only includes $400 million um, to protect our elections from the pandemic threat. Um, so is that enough to do what needs to be done? And can we talk in more detail about what needs to be done? You asked uh, about the money, and yes. um, which, which is um, maybe getting a little bit a, a ahead of our skis, but I'll, but I'll, but I'll start there. Um, the $400 million is certainly not enough uh, incremental money to do everything that needs to be done in um, in say to plan for November. Um, 
Um, $400 million, for instance, would probably pay for a mailing to everybody in the U.S. Um, 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 to request an absentee ballot, um, which, is not which, which is a way of framing it. It's not that everybody has to request one, but, but it's going to be expensive to do some of the basic things if we want to do what's the most important um, recommendation, and that is to make um, ballots more accessible to people, um, mail ballots more accessible. So, I mean, certainly more money is going to need to be expended, um, but it's not only money, and maybe the more I think about it, maybe not even primarily money. Um, um, the big part, I think, is the logistical challenge of getting, um, you know, getting prepared for uh, the ballots and getting prepared for um, to protect the in-person um, the in-person voting places on the ballot side um, Nate and I you know delineate uh, a number of states that need to be taken um, steps that need to be taken in order to make sure that ballots to get to the people who need to get them that they get back that voters are assured that their votes are are actually being recorded etc so that's a very exacting chain of, of events. On the, on the in-person voting, we know how to vote in person. I think the challenge that's gonna be coming up is twofold. One, we're gonna be closing polling places. And we know one of the most robust findings in the social sciences is when you close polling places, it does reduce turnout. And so that's gonna be a challenge. Um, to the degree that people are going to, some will rely on polling places. The other one is going to be dealing with the poll worker challenge. Now, the most, the biggest poll worker challenge that's been talked about has been just the challenge of getting enough poll workers because of concerns about contracting the disease. Um, poll workers skew older; they're more concerned about con on contracting disease. But, but even if you had young poll workers, you have to train them. And we're likely to get a big infusion of maybe hundreds of thousands of new poll workers who've not been trained. Um, who knows if we can actually get people into rooms to train them about what to do. So there's gonna be a big training challenge to, um, under the best of circumstances. So once you begin to war game this out, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of logistics that need to be dealt with. A lot of public health um, 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 things that need to be done. All that's independent of the money. Um, you could um, you could turn this around and say and say we could have had a two or three three billion dollar price tag on running the elections for November, but if it's not planned outright, you could still have a very expensive mess on your hands. Nate, you want to jump in? So I'll just emphasize what Charles said, which is that you know th this is a very difficult logistical undertaking, and that we need to treat it that way. Um, you know, three of the four of us here are lawyers, uh, and in some ways, the lawyers need to kind of get out of the way a little bit and realize that th this is a public management and administration challenge, uh, and that we've got some fundamental logistical hurdles that need to be overcome uh, uh, in the next, really in the next month, because any election administrator will tell you that unless you have all your procurement decisions done by June before November, you're not gonna get them uh, done in time. And just, I agree with everything that Charles said, so I won't, I won't repeat it, except to say that we have to understand that election administration is the, the victim of all the other problems that are afflicting the US economy right now. So if you 
want to procure scanners uh, because you're rolling out vote by mail, you have the same problem as everybody else who's trying to procure new equipment, right? There aren't companies that are meeting, uh, uh, you know, in, in factories to, uh, to produce some of this equipment, um, uh, you know, to roll out, even the election administrators themselves Right, are having Zoom calls to figure out what they're going to be doing in November, right? And to recruit poll workers and to do training, right? This requires a whole infrastructure for many states that doesn't currently exist. Um, and that's where the, you know, the poll worker uh, shortage and training is obviously critical because there are so many older people who are, uh, tend to be poll workers and that would be at risk for the virus, but even in states that move to vote by mail, right, they're going to have to hire uh, hundreds of thousands of people, if it is a massive vote by mail operation, people who have not done this before, right, uh, and that they're, they're really going to have to um, uh, learn on the fly. This is one of the reasons that while the resources are in short supply, so is time, time both before and after the election. And one of the things that we really need to be accustomed to, and I know, Ned, you've written about this, is that we need to realize that we might not have all the ballots counted uh, you know, on election night, because the more, if we end up with 50, over 50 million votes cast by mail, um, that we need to you know, not just <laughs> try to, to spend money in order to avoid that problem, but we also need to um, give some slack to the election administrators and the people who will be doing the counting so that they have time to do this right. Uh, and also for voters, right? That we, we, you know, if polling places are going to be requiring social distance, not only will there might there be fewer polling places like Charles said, but we're going to have to space voters apart by six feet, right? It's going to be, uh, there's going to be a little more friction in the process and we have to understand that um, the virus is going to slow everything down. So Nate, if I could just um, pick up on one thing that you said, you said uh, get the lawyers out of the way so the administrators can do their their administration, and I'm sympathetic to that, but I just heard Mark Elias, who's a lead lawyer for the Democratic Party, list all the litigation that he wants to bring between now and November over particularly absentee voting. He's suing in Michigan, he's suing in Arizona, he's looking at all the pivotal states for the presidential and, and US Senate races and figuring out his list of litigation. So even if as law professors try to get out of the way, don't we need to at least, war, in terms of wargaming, don't we have to think about what role that kind of litigation is going to play as the administrators are trying to do their thing? Yes. And I mean, I was not so subtly uh, pointing in that direction. I mean, that, that there is, um, look, there is a place for litigation and it's inevitable uh, in a contentious election like what we have here. But um, the most important thing right now is to figure out whether we can pull off the basics of this election, right? To try to make the procurement decisions that are necessary right now, to make sure that um, we have uh, all the resources in place uh, for November. And um, you can go to court to try to compel some of those the decisions to be made. Um, but, you know, the local administrators right now are, are literally trying to work with the limited resources that they have uh, to try to, 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 you know, get as much many voters into the mail balloting process, but also to update their polling places uh, so that they can uh, deal with the threat of the virus. And so, um, the, of course, the litigation is inevitable, 
Um, but we need to sort of sound the clarion call here that we need a lot of administrative and logistical help. Um, because if you only have five polling places in a county, right, there's, um, because you don't have polling workers who are showing up, all the lawyers in the world are not going to make them appear. Uh, and so, and so you need to, you know, we, we need to try to prepare for those, those likely problems. And let me tell you my, my, I won't call it my nightmare scenario, but, but the thing that I'm, I'm worried about, which is that we're, we're sounding the alarm right now. And in the next month, and as we have these presidential primaries, there's going to still be real concern. But sometime over the summer, concern is going to reduce and people are going to think that we dodged the bullet and that we don't have a problem in November. And then as November comes along and then we have the second wave of the virus, then people are going to freak out again uh, and, and we won't have put in the necessarily building blocks to prepare for an election which requires this kind of social distancing and perhaps increased mail balloting. Yeah. Well, this may be a question more for Charles than for you, Nate, in terms of logistics, but um, and if you said this already, remind me to slow to pick up some of this stuff. What exactly is the time frame where the administrators are going to have to make these critical procurement decisions about how many absentee ballots they need and how much in-person uh, voting they think they can realistically expect in November? Because in my naive way, I'm thinking that an election administrator today almost has to plan for two different elections depending upon whether there is that second wave of the virus that you're talking about, because that could dramatically change how much in-person voting is possible. I mean, if, if voting were happening with the virus as it is today, it's not gonna be very much in-person voting as Ohio just experienced. On the other hand, if the virus subsides, there may be more of it. So do, do we have a good handle on what the time frame and the, of the planning process is to be able to pull it off, like you say? Um, well, um, I don't think we do. Um, as I'm talking to election officials, I mean, there's some of them, I mean, for some of them, these time frame issues are becoming, are coming into focus. And it may not be as intuitive as it seems. For, I mean, I mean for instance, um, I got an email today from an election official who is um, keen on trying to estimate how many mail ballots are going to have in November not in order to print the ballots, but because, but because she has to rent space to store the ballots. And that, that, is a, that apparently is a, is a question that needs to be dealt with now. Um, I haven't probed why, you know, why not printing, but from what I've um, gotten from talking to some other people, is that the printing issue in some ways might be or might not be an easier one to manage. In a number of states, you have a printing contractor. Um, they're responsible for, for delivering ballots. At this point, it's a matter of, of you know, basically telling them you know, how much paper stock they, they, need to, they need to order, and they have six months to procure it. Now, they, you know, now you have to come up with some estimates now about what you think turnout might be and the number of mail ballots might be in November. But, you know, you can make, you know, various estimates now or even within the next month and then make those more precise as you're getting down toward November. But, but there are some of these hard assets like real estate, like scanners, um, that may, you know, those decisions may need to be handled or made quicker than some of these ones about just how many ballots are you, are you going to print? Um, um, 
you know, we just don't know at this point. Um, I think right now most of the officials are, are basically trying to, trying to write down what are the decisions that need to be made because, you know, all of the decisions that we're talking about having to be made between now and November have been made before. I mean, officials have, have, have expertise or experience in doing them. They've just never had to make them all at the same time. And I think that, you know, the thing, the thing that maybe we need to be a little more patient about is giving the election officials another week or so um, to be, you know, to, to specify what it is that they need to do. And we're beginning to get some signals. I mean, North Carolina and California are two in, in, um, specifically where, you know, there have been notices of groups being stood up to, um, you know, take these issues and over the next month or so, um, peel them apart and understand um, what the logistics are. And so, you know, the, the November election is not next month, um, 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 but we will know better in the next um, couple of weeks about, you know, are we really under the gun or not for November? So I'm happy to give the uh, uh, election officials the time that they need, but, uh, and maybe this is a naive question, but I saw a Brennan Center uh, report that said, they are urging election officials to prepare for potentially 100% of turnout needing to be absentee. Now, it may not end up that way, but wouldn't it be prudent for officials to build in a little bit of redundancy given uncertainty? I mean, you know, a month from now, we're still not going to know whether Nate's nightmare uh, occurs. And so don't they need to be nimble enough to either have an all-male election or a partially uh, male election, depending upon which way the conditions turn out. Can I tack on to your question as well? Because that raises an issue for me of whether or not the remaining primaries can be used as a test, testing ground of sorts to see um, if we can resolve some of these issues. Um, so I, I also welcome your thoughts on that. Yeah. Let me, can I jump in there, Charles? I mean, I think that I have thought about the dry run of these primaries as being quite important. Um, so that we can make the mistakes at that stage instead of uh, in November. And so I think that is, that is quite important. It's, it, it's a different kind of election in a lot of ways, right? And depending on um, the competitiveness of the primary, you're going to have such low turnout, but it does provide an opportunity for some dry runs of this stuff. Um, but, but Ned, the, 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 your question, um, you know, assumes that there aren't trade-offs for preparing for all male ballots, right? That, that it's like, all right, you could do everything. And so they're working with limited resources and they're gonna have to make the call as to whether they're going to spend, a, you know, another, you know, $10 million on printing ballots that someone might not use, or they will use that money to uh, add another, you know, 100 polling places or something like that. And so, um, yes, you're right, in an ideal world, you could essentially prepare for all possibilities, but right now they're trying to game, game out what's most likely and what's most feasible from a resource perspective. Right? Yeah, but what happens if um, they undercount the need? You know, Ohio- No, well, that's the problem. I mean, that's why you build in, you build in cushions, right? They always do this. I mean, this is, you know, this is true with, you know, polling place design as well, the number of machines you allocate to polling places, right? When, you know, Charles is more expert on this than I, but at the, when we were with the presidential commission, right, we were thinking a lot about 
um, how you manage flow on election day in order to prevent long lines and you make certain decisions about the number of, uh, you know, register or, uh, uh, sign in stations versus the number of, uh, but, you know, voting machines. And then you obviously think about the type, the time of day that people are going to be voting. All of those kinds of things are, are variables that go in and then you build in some cushion, but you know, it's, it's, it's not as if you can build in cushions for every eventuality. There are trade-offs that they need to uh, think about. And some of the most experienced election administrators in the, in the country uh, end up sometimes on the wrong side of their predictions. And it's just a, 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 you know, it's a very difficult problem to manage when you don't know what the uh, flow is going to be like the, the, into voting by mail versus polling places in November. So just well, I, I just, if I can jump in here, I mean, uh, I think it's easy, um, and, and I might even have made this recommendation myself if, if asked. It, it's easy to say, um, yes, let's plan for 100% um, mail ballots, and you can have those ballots sitting in a, in a warehouse in case you need them. And maybe, in fact, that's possible to do. Um, um, I'm, I'm not, I, I haven't run an election, and what I don't know, for instance, is how flexible um, print runs are for ballots. I've talked to election officials over the years about you know, what has happened in Florida, for instance, during the early voting um, season when they've underestimated turnout during the early voting season. And it takes a couple of days to get a big delivery of ballots because the printing press is somewhere over in Louisiana or something for the, for the mail ballots. But the point is that there's flexibility on, in the printing presses to deliver ballots on some on some schedule, so it could actually be that you contract, do a contingent contract, maybe to print 100%. You print, I don't know, 50%, and then you hope for the best. I mean, there's all sorts of details that can be worked out. I think it's I I think it's just um to echo what Nate was saying, the easy decision in a world in which there are no resource constraints is to to assume that you will have 100% turnout in every mode, so that you're prepared for everything, but there will be resource constraints. Even if you dump two or four billion dollars onto this problem, there will be resource constraints. And so, and election officials already have contingencies because they've dealt with these problems before. And I think that part of the part of the patience that I'm that I'm um, suggesting is, you know, let's you know, let's pay attention to these details and let's let the election officials pay attention to those details. Um, I don't think it's reasonable to expect all of those decisions to be made, made in the next, next couple of weeks and that we have this, this danger of whipping ourselves into a froth, um, you know, worried that we're not prepared for um, the November election by the end of April. Can I yeah, say yeah, one no, thing on this, Wait, uh, Ned, which is that remember, one of the things that makes this different is that you're going to end up having all states worrying about this at the same time, right? And so that you have the pandemic, it's not like a hurricane that hits New York or, you know, like with Hurricane Sandy or one that hits Florida. Um, and so if you have, you know, the, the printer for many of the southern states, if it's in Louisiana or something, right, then everybody might end up making these demands at once. It's the same problem we're having with the ventilators and everything else that we're dealing with the pandemic. And so um, you can try to game out those scenarios right now. And I think that look, with adequate planning, we're, we're gonna sort of try to deal with the tail uh, problems here. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of, of 
choosing your risks. Uh, what, what are you most worried about in terms of uh, uh, not having voters being able to vote in November, right? You can, you can dedicate a lot more resources to mail, you can dedicate it to poll workers, you can dedicate it to polling places, voting machines and the like, you just have to make a decision about where the money is best spent. Well, here's what I'm worried about in that regard. I'm specifically worried about Philadelphia and Detroit, two um, big cities in pivotal states, both states that have moved to no excuse absentee voting even before the virus. And what I'm worried about is that the demand to vote by mail is higher than the, they planned for. And then they've got all these uh, requests for absentee ballots that come in that they're not able to supply which then leads to litigation. And you know, the title of our podcast is, is Free and Fair. And so I worry about you know, pulling off a, a free and fair election if the election administrators can't meet the demand for the absentee ballots that come in. And the other way that the demand could increase, again, is if the virus does have a second wave, then Michigan and Pennsylvania could look like Ohio last week. Because you know, as, as you guys know, and here's where the primary could be something of a test run. You know, Ohio canceled its uh, election day in-person voting and, you know, and only had absentee voting and early voting and then had to remediate uh, the elimination of the traditional neighborhood voting. The Secretary of State wanted to remediate that one way by having a second day of in-person voting on June 2nd. The legislature stepped in and said, no, it's only going to be some additional mail vote, voting that's going to take us out till April. You know, if we had a version of that in November in any state, you know, we're talking about having to remediate the November 3rd election because um, there aren't enough absentee ballots given to voters who want them or conditions are on the ground such that it doesn't allow for the kind of in-person voting that, that people expect. I realize these are difficult issues, but that's my concern. Well, I mean, they're, they're my concern as well, but, but, but we can just, we can maybe, and maybe we just stipulate now it's going to be a, a, a train wreck in Philadelphia and, 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 and Detroit, even without a, a pandemic. I mean, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, 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 but I don't want to be, I don't want to lead with being, um, being pessimistic, or at least I want to lead by thinking through carefully what the likely problems are going to, going to be and the difficulties with mitigating. As I understand it, and I could be wrong, the issues that have shown up in Philadelphia and, and, and Detroit don't lead me to believe that the fundamental problem there will be an under, under ordering of mail ballots. The issue there will be management of, of poll workers and the counting of the ballots, um, having enough people to count them. To some degree, it could be even worse than I'm imagining. That is, if you have to train a whole bunch of poll workers in those two places, that's gonna be a challenge. Okay, so that's gonna be a big challenge. On the other hand, one of the ways that, if, if it's simply not having enough people to count all those ballots on, on election night, if that's the issue, there's just too many ballots to count on election night, well then counting goes into Wednesday and Thursday. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. And so, right, the cost then is shifted into time, and that gets back to Nate's point about about patience. And so, and so, what I want us to do is just, and this is what the election officials are doing. They, they they're asking, what happens if we don't get enough ballots? How do we get ballots? How do we get people to count them? What are the trade-offs between focusing on the ballot problem or the counting problem? And it might very well be that the 
that the ballot ordering problem is, is of a larger magnitude than getting enough people to run the ballots through the scanners. Um, you know, we just don't know it at the, at the moment, and that's the sort of planning that needs to, needs to be happening. And that's what lawyers and non-lawyers need to be focusing on, it seems to me, as they're following what states and localities are doing in their crisis planning. In light of these concerns, I do want to talk a little bit about um, what we can realistically expect the November election to look like. Um, now, of course, some of it will be based on projections that election officials are used to making, which is something that both you, Nate, and, and you, Charles, have talked about, and Ned as well. Um, but in your lawfare piece, you have 10 recommendations um, that you are um, sort of pushing in order to avoid a disaster in November. And um, realistically, it's unlikely that states will be able to implement all of them. Or, right. you know, it's also uh, you're unlikely that they'll be able to properly account for some of the things that you, you said that they should think about. Like, for example, will states... Um, properly think about partisan polarization when expanding voting by mail. Um, I'm not sure, maybe some states, but certainly not all. Um, will states be more centralized in thinking about election administration as opposed to uh, forcing local officials to shoulder much of the burden? Also unclear, right? Um, so of your recommendations, which of them do you view as being absolutely essential for November? Well, the, the, the two for me are, um, encouraging as much mail balloting as the market will bear. And I think that I mean, that hedging is an important one, but encouraging as much mail balloting as market the market will bear. And um, planning to um, run as many in-person polling places as are possible given the constraints of poll workers and public health. Um, and I think the other eight of the recommendations by it, I think can be thought of as being, as revolving around those two, um, right? And um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, um, this, um, this hedging by saying what the market will bear, I think that points out a couple of things. One is there's, you know, we, we're, you know we're worried about the election being carried out at all. But the other concern is that the election be carried out in a way that's seen as legitimate by the candidates and their supporters. And before this current crisis, we were already worried about that. And um, and so you can push some. I mean, you can push some of these um, some of these changes, especially voting by mail, in particular states, to the point where it might look where it's going to look to a lot of people like a democratic grab for votes. Um, and so you need to be, um, you know, sensitive to, to that. And it might be that at some point you don't quite push as hard on the mail balloting as you might in order to stay within, say, state norms of things. So, for instance, if you're a state that has always required, um, always required an excuse to um, get an absentee ballot, I've been recommending, I think we recommend it in, in the piece I, I recall, that well, you could just you could move to calling you know concerns about um, infection um, as sufficient for medical excuse, right? So that's kind of and then make clear it's this one election. We're not going to do it in the future. This is for emergency purposes. To try to stay as close to um, you know as close to things um, as normal as possible to worry um, to keep the legitimacy issues under control. Um, so so anyway, I mean. Be concerned about pushing mail ballots as far as you can, but but be, understand that you're not going to be able to um, push to all vote all, all mail voting or even up to fifty or sixty percent 
and a lot of states, even under the best of circumstances. So you have to you have to plan for in-person voting. And I and there, I actually I'm pretty sanguine about that, leaving aside um, poll worker staffing. Um, between now and November, we're going to have to figure out how to be in crowded places with other people, or at least in enclosed spaces with other people. We're already learning that. Um, we're learning how to shop. Um, we have to shop. We have to take our kids to daycare in some cases. And, you know, in, in, in Massachusetts, they're talking about starting up feeding stations um, to get um, lunches and breakfasts to the kids who are not in the public schools. That's going to teach us how to queue up um, to keep social distance and these and things that look an awful lot like voting. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sanguine about um, the in-person um, aspect of things. I'll just add to Charles's points. I do agree that you know you can sort of bucket these into whatever you can need to do to, to increase mail balloting and then also to make polling places as ubiquitous as possible if they are safe as possible. Um, but that, you know, I, I, while we've said that money's not going to solve everything, we need more money from the federal government than has been promised in this bill, um, uh, partly because the states are going to be cutting back in general because they're losing money because of the recession. Uh, and so, so we, I, I don't want to let that go. Um, but that all these decisions, you know, so there's the personnel, there's the money, but then there's the time, right? And so I just want to hit again the point that we need to have patience um, in before election day. So voters may be, may be uh, you know, waiting in longer lines because of social distancing on early voting. There be, they'll, might be longer lines uh, on, on election day, but also that we need to have more time to count the ballots afterwards because I think that that and we, we need the media to develop the norm of trying to wait to announce the victor until several days after once the ballots are counted and that goes to the legitimacy point that we've been talking about right which is that um, there's going to be all kinds of people who are going to be on websites that will be willing to announce the victor uh, on election day, if not before and um, um, we need to at least have the responsible media outlets to realize the, the game has changed and that there's enough ballots outstanding that they're not gonna be able to uh, know who the victor is on election night. Yeah, on that point, funnily enough, I may be more sanguine than I used to be. As you, Nate, said, you know, Charles and I have been in particular concerned about uh, the issue of delayed counting or of ballots, but, but if we have a world in which voting in November looks very differently than it does in the past, maybe the media will actually be able to understand that you're just not going to get answers uh, on election night and that, that that actually will be less of a problem than, than some other. And, and if I can go back to what Charles was saying, I completely agree that we should, with his legitimacy point, that we can't have responding to the pandemic be seen as a partisan issue. This is about how to run a fair election for you know, our two-party system or our multi-party system so nobody gets a leg up. Um, but it, on that regard, I'm, a little, I'm less sanguine than you, Charles. I wish I, I could be convinced that, that uh, we can expect that 50% of the voting, even in traditional states, is going to be you know, some version of in-person voting where we've solved the, the queuing problem in terms of social distance. I mean, I like that vision. 
I just don't know if we can assume that that's realistic. And, uh, you know, I, I happen to hear, I think you heard the same comment, uh, uh, a Tennessee election officials trying to take the position that because they're a state that insists on having an excuse if you're under the age of 60, that they want to insist that uh, just being afraid of the virus is not an excuse, um, which, you know, I, I know that's not your position, but I just don't know that that's going to be an, a tenable position realistically come the fall again, if the virus is still will, with us. I mean, voters are going to be demanding the right to vote by mail if that's what they think is better for themselves in terms of safety. And I, is it going to be possible for a, a, a state to deny that request, even in a state like Tennessee? Well, I mean, look, I mean, um, I mean, public officials are going to be saying all sorts of things. And I think, um, I mean, and what I don't know, I mean, I, I know, I know about the, the comment from the Tennessee official that you're talking about. And, you know, we're not dead yet. And, you know, the, the election isn't, you know, hasn't, hasn't happened yet. And people are going to make a whole lot of noises that will remind us that there is a partisan cast to virtually every decision that is made, being made. And I think, um, you know, and I don't know where there will be in Tennessee. I, I actually have a sense that it may be close to what that partisan, what, what that, what that official is suggesting is that, um, you know, they're not going to um, kind of bend on the, um, they're not going to bend on the, um, on the medical excuse. Um, but, you know, um, Tennessee is a, is a state where you can get a ballot over 65 um, um, without any other excuse. So, um, you know, why not have, you know, <laughs> you, you can bet if that were the situation in Tennessee, the campaigns are going to be pushing to get 65 year olds um, to vote by mail. And that won't mean that won't be chump change because in Tennessee, there's a very small percentage of, of votes right now cast by cast by mail. Um, you could easily move that up. Um, and you know, something around 20%, 30% of the electorate is over 65. And so even you know, focusing on that population, you could, I mean, you could do some good. Um, so, you know, so, I mean, it's going to go state by state and I don't want to be entirely Pollyanna-ish about this other than, to, other than to say that I think we have to understand that the guardrails are going to be defined partly by partisanship and how some of these reform proposals are going to be viewed through a partisan lens. And in every state, there's going to have to be, I think, um, um, cooler heads who say to people like that official in Tennessee, that look, yes, um, you can view this as, in a, as a partisan way, but here are other Republicans who think that you know this is a one-time thing, and we have to we have to think differently. Um, so there's a, yeah, so we're gonna have to work at every angle here. I don't think we can just make pronouncements about what needs to be done and assume that that's going to happen. And I don't think we can we can um, just assume that the cheap what what a political scientist would would call as cheap talk. Um, um, early in the, you know, early in the sequence is going to be where everybody ends up at the end. Can I also say that it's not clear who the partisan winners and losers are under some of these shifts? I mean, we're basing decisions on, say, the likely partisan effect of uh, male voting based on the way it has been done up till now. But give, you know, if you had 
you know, 50 million people who end up uh, voting by mail in the next election under these sort of different circumstances. It's not clear who the winners are. I mean, you take, you know, this quite, it is true that, you know, the mail ballots tend to be older and whiter. And so you might think that, look, um, th those are groups that are more likely to be Republican. So then Republicans should be more in favor of increased uh, mail balloting. And people of color tend to be more, uh, want to vote in polling places. Um, but, you know, these these differences are dependent on the kinds of availability of, of polling places that we've seen traditionally, right? And so if there's a real shock to the system, I think it's, it's uncertain how the political parties and the candidate campaigns are going to behave in order to work within the rules that are newly set by the state and local officials. While we're talking about partisanship and, and while we have the two of you uh, as guests on this episode, um, you know, I hate to, to be doom and gloom, um, particularly because there are all these challenges that you've, we've been talking about, but, but let's suppose um, some dispute arises in November that despite best efforts all around the country to, to do things well, you know, we, we get um, doubt and uncertainty as to the outcome. Do you, do either of you think that the, the virus changes how we should think about recounts and, and the vote counting process, or does this just add one more factor for us to think about in terms of uh, if the parties are, are uh, fighting over the result, say, of the presidential election? Well, I, I would just say that um, it is one more uh, setting in which the constraints on personnel and resources become relevant. And so if you, uh, you know, if you have a recount or if you're just dealing with lots of paper ballots after election day, right, it, you have to have the people who are willing to be in the facilities working near each other who are counting the ballots, right? You have to have procured the, the right equipment and the like. Um, if you actually, if it is a Bush versus Gore kind of scenario, if you think about like the canvassing boards that were in Florida at the time, right, none of them would be able to work in the way that they did under conditions of social distancing that are required, uh, uh, you know, because of the virus. And so that's the way I would think about it is that it's just another area, just like polling places where you have to think about how the virus is going to affect you know, um, the personnel that you're going to have available and the way that they can do their job. Yeah, wow. And I, I would add to that, it's also the case that, that we know there, there's just going to be much more to fight over um, for a, you know, for an equal margin of litigation here. There's going to be more paper um, and it's going to be more absentee ballots, um, which we know are going to be more problematic. They just always are. Um, and so there's just going to be more to fight about under the constraints that Nate is mentioning. That is, um, it's going to be harder for recount um, boards to um, teams to operate and for canvassing boards to, to, to make decisions. I mean, we've all, I think we've all seen um, recounts happen and canvassing boards operate. And this, there's a lot of scrumming going on. Um, as, as those groups meet. And that's going to be just really difficult to do, um, especially with two, three, four, five times more paper to fight over. Yeah, wow, right. So last question for me. Um, uh, Fernita mentioned, Nate, at the top of the, the episode that you were involved with the, actually both 
uh, you and Charles, I believe, were involved in the Bauer Ginsburg Co Commission uh, in different capacities. And the editorial, Nate, that you that you wrote, alluded to the idea of of that being a model for maybe what we need now, another bipartisan commission. Could you say a little bit some more about bringing bipartisanship into this process, given what we were just talking about, that the, the risk of polarization and the risk of parties uh, worried about the other side gaming it. How do you see bipartisanship uh, working here on out? Well, one concern I have with all these groups that are kind of springing up in different sectors is that you do not have the kind of bipartisan local election official uh, representation in them yet. The, the national organizations like National Association of Secretaries of State, National Association of State Election Directors, National Conference of State Legislatures, and then the other associations of, of local election officials are in some ways doing work in quiet uh, because they're just got their heads down and trying to, to pull this off. Uh, that, that group needs to be the one with the largest megaphone right now, that they need to be the ones who are um, being very clear about what's necessary for uh, the fall. And so the, if you notice in our op-ed, we're not talking about like, you know, a, a elder statesman kind of um, commission. We think you need uh, sort of like a red team of logisticians and people who are expert on the mail and uh, pulling off uh, this, these kinds of transitions to be available for each state and locality that needs it, and particularly for the Election Assistance Commission, which is gonna be at least some kind of clearinghouse, both for information and money. Uh, I don't see this you know, being popped up anytime soon, um, but we want to at least shift the emphasis away from some of these folks who have never run an election, who, but who are pontificating about what is necessary toward those people on the ground who are really in the weeds. So if I could add to that, um, I mean, so Nate, Nate was, was, was actually a part of the commission as the staff. I was a, I was a camp follower. Um, and so from the outside- But Charles was the brains behind it. So you have to understand that. So um, I'll- uh, but, but, you know, but, what I, but what I observed there was, um, you know, I think you know, one of the first decisions made by the commission was that it was going to be fact-driven and science-driven. And it relied on the testimony and white papers and input from experts in a wide variety of fields, um, plus um, you know the testimony of voters and others who were considered concerned about particular um, um, concerns. And it's a, that's a model for the current situation in the ways that Ned mentions. I, I'm sorry, Nate mentions, and that is there are a number of kind of logistical and practical issues that need to be addressed here. Um, within all the other constraints of things that we expect out of elections. And um, it, it strikes me that at the moment, those of us who on the outside who care about elections need to be asking election officials what they need rather than um, supposing that, you know, we're here from, you know, we're here from the government, you know, we're from the government, we're here to help, which is a bad thing. Not quite the right way to say it, but we're from universities and we're here to help. That might or might not be a useful thing. Well, great. Um, Fernita, do you want to uh, share some final thoughts on today? 
I think our conversation today was really, really excellent in terms of thinking about what the facts are on the ground and how important it is to defer to those who are charged with running our system of elections. Um, and also, um, one thing that struck me as particularly important is this idea that on election day, we might not know who won, right? One of the um, byproducts of the coronavirus pandemic is that we have to do our elections differently. And so what that means is that we have to respect the process and let it play out and not panic and not question its legitimacy simply because it takes longer than what we're used to. Um, so I really thank our guests for coming on and coming on and really honing that point for our listenership. Amen.